Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you might be. This is Cloud Unfiltered. I'm Nikki Acosta, your hostess with the Moses. And I've got a really great guest with us today, our very own Ken Owens. Hey, Nikki, thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to being unfiltered today. Yes, and a much thinner Ken Owens. I, I, uh, I couldn't believe it, I hadn't seen you in a while, but I was like, man, Ken looks <laughs> good for him. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing what um, not traveling as often can help you with. <laughs> That's where I usually get tripped up. I, I find that uh, being on the road, it's really hard to eat healthy, especially when there's just so many good things you want to eat and Definitely. regional things and people you want to go eat with. But let's get to it. You know, we typically start out by asking, you know, how would you get to be where you are today? You've uh, obviously been in technology for a long time, but take us back to when you were younger. What were you like? Yeah, well, as, as a kid, I always like to break things and then try to fix them. And so, um, you know, my parents always had me out of the house trying to fix other things besides things that I break in their house. And so um, engineering became very natural to me. Uh, I loved um, doing engineering, went to do uh, electrical engineering. And so it started off my career doing sort of uh, like telecommunications and uh, some of the early days of ATM and frame relay and the convergence of the two and then move into MPLS. And so um, moved from a telco to a, to tell labs where I was like building routers and switches to a startup company building network processor ASICs and switch fabric ASICs to sort of um, when the economy crashed, moved into IT. So I kind of got background with an enterprise company working at two different banks and so leading up architecture and engineering within the bank environment. Um, and then when a, an opportunity in St. Louis opened up with a, a hosting provider called Savvis Communications, I jumped over to Savvis and spent uh, a lot of my early cloud days and, um, you know, um, kind of cloud computing and platform as a service type of efforts at, at Savvis and then moved over to Cisco to do InterCloud. And um, everywhere I go, I sort of keep the same theme of, you know, focus on customers, focus on what their needs are, what they're looking for, and, um, you know, try to stay as, as connected to them as, as possible to their needs and to what they're looking to accomplish. And then organize your teams around um, speed and, and focusing on execution and delivery because um, my, my motto is uh, working code or outbeat a PowerPoint anytime. And so, you know, I try to make sure we, I live by that mantra and have running code for demos and not just a bunch of PowerPoints. You know, Ken, one thing that I think is really uh, sort of fascinating about you is you've, you've managed to kind of work on, I'll say, kind of a traditional infrastructure. And now you're kind of like this guy who's like at the bleeding edge of technology. Uh, I know that, uh, that you work with our DevNet team, but you're also uh, a technical oversight committee member, correct? Right. So yep, that's correct on the city and Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And what is what is that foundation? What do y'all work on? What do you do? So in, in the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, about a year ago, uh, Google was looking at taking Kubernetes and open sourcing it. And they weren't sure exactly the right way to do that. And so they worked with the Linux Foundation to put together a um, Cloud Native Foundation where Kubernetes is one of the many projects in the foundation today. Um, and, and the whole concept around cloud native is the industry is confused. There's so many terms and so many ways you could say something is cloud native. And, and over the years, 
the confusion just seems to keep growing and and the way terminology gets thrown around and open source projects take off and mature and so the goal of the cloud native foundation is to help define what cloud native means um there's a, an executive steering committee that, that Cisco is one of the founding members for. And then there's a group of, of technologists that were voted in by the community at large um, as, as to individuals that should represent what the technical aspects of cloud native means. And I'm on that technical oversight committee. So what kind of things do you get to make decisions about? In, in the first year of, of the foundation, it was really about defining what we want the foundation to do. And so the first decision that we made was um, we're not going to allow to happen to cloud native what happened with like OpenStack and with like, you know, other projects and other foundations in the Linux foundation, meaning that we don't want to create a big tent or create a bunch of projects that people go off and develop their own technology. Um, what we wanted to do was sort of say there are multiple ways to accomplish cloud native solutions and there are multiple projects that are having success in the enterprise space doing that. And so let's go talk with these companies and these projects and say, here are uh, best practices and things that have worked for these enterprises. Here's how you should try to start about this journey towards cloud native. And, and we'll get more on that journey later, but uh, the whole aspect of you know, let's start with what's popular, what's getting adoption and what's being successful. And let's kind of build a foundation around that ecosystem and try to help enterprises and, and users understand how to go down this path and give them some support as they're going down this path. Um, so that's kind of the first decision we made. The second decision and what I've been involved in is bringing projects into the CNCF. And so I, I work closely with the container networking interface um, work group. Um, they are, they've defined sort of some very basic primitives around what you should expect from your underlying networking interface for cloud native. And so we brought CNI into the CNCF as a project that's part of our foundation. Um, and I'm, I'm working with other projects um, across the, the industry right now to look at that. How do we support them? How do we bring them into cloud native foundation? Do they make sense in the foundation? Do they meet our criteria for what we want as a project in the foundation? And so I spent a lot of time working with individual projects and, and talking with users of cloud native technology to understand and help determine what direction we want to take the foundation. So, so what is CNI in a nutshell? So CNI in a nutshell is just an interface specification for how do you, you know, request a network interface? How do you assign an IP address? If you're familiar with, with Linux um, commands, it's, it's very similar to, you know, you know, if interface up and, you know, you know, do netstat dash NR and you get, you know, the routes for, for the, for the container network, right? So it's, it's basically taking some of the very basic primitives of a networking interface, you know, defining your gateway, defining your DNS, defining your, you know, your net mask, right? So the basic, you know, IP configuration list. Um, and it starts with that, just sort of making it so networking individuals or developers can understand how to request a specific IP address or request a specific DNS server to be their DNS server. So in Cisco, from, from like the Cisco viewpoint, you know, obviously uh, Cisco is a company that uh, has its roots sort of in networking and in a lot of ways define the space around networking. But what do you see between, I'll see Cisco's sort of traditional product lines and sort of moving to this, 
you know, container networking model? Like what advantages does it have over some of the more traditional networking models? Yeah, well, definitely. I think there's two ways I like to look at that, that question, right? The first way is um, depending on the use case, traditional networking is, is what you have today, right? And so in most cases, I don't really see it as an advantage or disadvantage. I see it as an integration point. How do you take on a containerized environment into your existing network without rewriting how networking should work, right? And, and the example I like to give is when everything is working well and you have no problems, you don't care where your container lives or your services live, right? But in the real world, things break and things don't function the way you expect them to. And, and you need to know where that service is that just went down because your other services, while they're loosely coupled and don't require that service to be available, you can't create new services without that service, right? And so you have to kind of, you know, to some extent you have to kind of understand what is happening at that underlying network layer, whether it's an overlay network or a physical network, you want to have visibility into that underlying infrastructure layer. And so you want to kind of extend your existing networking capabilities into this container space for, if, if for no other reason than to just have a better view of what's happening. The second aspect is, is really important to your question, right? Why containerize? Why look at cloud native, right? Um, and I think there's two ways that, that I like to answer that question too. The first one is, as you look at structuring your application and, and the way application um, availability is so critical today and, and your, your reputation sits in a lot of times on the way that application beha behaves and performs, right? And so, Cloud native and, and just containerizing and breaking up your, your monolithic application into multiple independent services that can all be run and maintained and distributed independently of each other and scaled independently of each other, right? Allows you to be much more reactive to your customers, allows you to be much more available and, and get your uptime a lot higher and allows you to, in a lot of ways, abstract yourself from that underlying hardware or services that you're, you're buying from a, a provider, right? Because you're now, you're writing your code at a, at a, at a, um, at a sort of a function level or at a service level that doesn't require any underlying definition of hardware or services from a provider. Um, the other aspect of that, that I think is important, especially with the networking question you have is, when you're connecting your services together, you don't want to have to train people how to do some kind of new network model or some type of a new network way of doing things, right? And and you don't want to make it so somebody has to stop and think, okay, I need an IP address. How would I configure an IP address for a container and then make them go off and type commands that have no like reality in what the rest of the world does today <laughs> for networking, right? And so... I think it's really important that as you look at developing containers and microservices, you want that networking to be consistent with what you would typically do on any sort of a Linux device or a Windows device today, so that it's it's familiar to you when you go to type in those commands. And that that's why I think if you take, keep those two views in mind, you're extending your existing network in a way that makes sense for your developers and, and is similar to what you would do for any type of a networking configuration today. That's why CNI made so much sense to bring into the CNCF. Got it. So how does how does security fit into all this? I, you know, oftentimes when you're hearing about, you know, networking, there's always this idea that, you know, 
are containers at the network layer secure? Uh, are they secure enough? Like, you know, how does this impact other sort of security measures that you might take? It seems like that would be a sort of a high priority concern. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, there's, there is some, I guess, agreement across the industry that in general, software development is more secure as you limit that attack surface. So building things as a container limits that attack surface area, right? Now, that doesn't mean that just having a container makes you more secure. You still have to write your software in a way that that, that surface area is not open to attack, right? And so there's still development needed and secure processes to keep in place when you're developing in cloud native. But decreasing that, that attack surface is important. The area that, that is really important now in cloud native that is, is just starting to be discussed is in the same way that, that when you looked at cloud computing many years ago, uh, networking and, and security were some of the last components to move towards that cloud model, right? Um, security is just now kind of becoming more virtualized and more like cloud and cloud enabled, right? And we're automatically starting to change this now to cloud native and containers and most security solutions don't understand containers today. They kind of operate at at a layer below the container, but way above the container and don't really understand that they have a set of services underneath them, right? And so one of my concerns, and it's, it's a little bit off topic, but you know, an example where I see a concern is like an IoT, as you have these services being registered automatically through like Kubernetes, how do you know that that service is really the service that it says it is? There's no way to validate that, right? There's no, wow. there's no secrets, there's no security model or parameters in place to say, yes, this is a DNS service and it is the right one I'm connecting to, right? And so I think over time, you're gonna see security evolving quite a bit in the cloud native space to address some of these, um, I guess, security by design is what I like to call it aspects of when I connect into a, a interface, I'm going to validate that that's the right interface and that I'm not being, you know, man in the middle attacked by some service that's ad hocly connecting into me. Which, which is crazy. I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels between sort of that and like, you know, what's happening just in general at the consumer level. You know, there's a lot of yep. crazy things happening with security. It seems like, you know, there's, there's uh, some people that have sort of nef nefarious intent uh, that seem to just almost stay a step ahead. I've seen, I'm reading articles on uh, security, even when it comes to clicking on links in like Twitter, you know, things that would seem right. relatively innocuous. Uh, and, and I've certainly gotten some some suspect stuff from family members that <laughs> I'm like, huh, is your computer working? Did you really send me this? <laughs> so I, I think, uh, you know, it's always, it's always good to kind of think up that stuff sort of uh, at the beginning. It's good that uh, that the foundation is is taking sort of measures so that it's not an afterthought, I guess. Right. And and we're taking it from the standpoint of of open source projects today. So we're we're trying to work with um, with the communities of interest that are doing open source projects, but we're not completely closed off to to companies that have products in this space either. And so. Um, we, we have a landscape document on, if you go to GitHub, uh, CNCF, you'll see that there's a landscape um, that we keep updating on GitHub that has a list of like security projects and products that we are interested in working with and trying to figure out how to make 
cloud native more secure. And so again, kind of different than like other foundations in the industry, we're not trying to go off and create a whole new security model. We're trying to take what the industry accepts as good security and working security today and help amplify that message and help integrate it with the other projects that are interest and that customers are having success with. In, on the topic of, of just sort of, this is kind of related to what you're, you're talking about, you know, I, I got to give OpenStack a lot of credit. I mean, obviously, I probably, <laughs> I might be a little biased because I spent a lot of time uh, in OpenStack. And, and in a lot of ways, I think OpenStack kind of sort of, you know, had to start from scratch when it comes to creating a, a massively scalable uh platform and collection of projects and a community and they did a really good job and they still continue to do a good job on the community end. but it sounds like you know they're almost a case study at this point you know how, how do you think <laughs> that where do you think OpenStack has fallen short uh, in terms of you mentioned big tent but right. in a lot of ways do you, do you think that OpenStack is still on the right path I think the nice thing about OpenStack is it keeps correcting itself and, and working on making it better, right? And so um, I think Mark and, and the OpenStack um, board does a great job of listening to feedback, trying to adjust the way they're going forward. Um, to me, where OpenStack has struggled recently is the industry is moving towards smaller containerized set of services. And OpenStack, as you know, is a bunch of big, large monolithic services, right? And so, and the projects you have to kind of bundled together and the complexity is difficult. And a lot of people ask me, why would I deploy OpenStack? Why would I not just jump straight to Kubernetes and just try to build my own, you know, set of services? And and the conversation is usually around there's a there's a big difference between OpenStack projects and cloud native projects. And that cloud native projects sit within an OpenStack framework. They're not they're not separate. They're not outside of it. Um, they're not a whole new way of doing infrastructure, there's a new way of developing applications and they need to leverage the existing infrastructure, whether it's OpenStack or, or Microsoft or Amazon or any other cloud provider or any infrastructure that you have internally, right? You want to, kind of like I mentioned with um, CNI, you want to complement and integrate your existing deployments with cloud native models and methodologies and practices. You don't want to try to recreate the will and go off and build your own new set of, of capabilities. And so, OpenStack, it's still very relevant, and there are a lot of large enterprises that that want to run and operate their own private cloud or their own hybrid, you know, destiny, right? And they're not going to feel comfortable putting theme, everything out in the public cloud. And so, um, I think that's where OpenStack has a great home. And what OpenStack has done recently is is really listen to the community and, and trying to fit Kubernetes and cloud native patterns into OpenStack. And I think that's what's really important here is that we we figure out a way to integrate cloud native and, and Kubernetes with OpenStack versus trying to make them separate discussions. So so are we fighting for sort of I'll say control point mindshare? Like wh where should the control point be? Depending on who you talk to, it seems like, you know, if you talk to networking folks, they think the control point is the network. If you talk to application folks, you know, they want they want to be able to define their control point through their app or through the deployment tools that they're using for their app. But where right. do you where does that control point where should it live? So I mean there's there's several ways that you can kind of look at that that question, Nikki, but I think, you know, in my mind, 
the control point almost always lives with the business and with who owns the PL for for the business, right? And so, um, yes, the infrastructure team is important. Yes, the networking team is important. Um, you know, and and take that to the next level. Companies like Cisco and Arista and you know EMC are all very important in the future of where this industry is heading. There's there's no there's no taking away from that. Um, but I think we got to this point of a big divide between infrastructure and applications because the application team has a job to do, right? They're making money. They're trying to grow the business. The infrastructure team is a cost center, right? And they're, they're basically trying to put processes and secure the infrastructure, help make sure that, that, that the company isn't going to put themselves at risk. And those two things collide with each other, right? When the infrastructure team is delaying a deployment of a very important application or an update to an application for very good reason. I'm not saying they have bad reasons for doing that, right? But when they hold it up and say, I need to go a change window on the second Thursday of the month to make this networking chain so you can then deploy your application. The application team's like, that's bullshit. I can just go to Amazon and deploy it right now. I don't need you. Right? <laughs> You're slowing me down because you have this process that I don't care about and it doesn't help my business grow. And so um, we we got to this over years, as you know, with infrastructure and, and admin, you know, application teams fighting about this. Um, and it's to some extent, it's good that we got to this point because I think what I see with with cloud native now, and what I what I want to kind of get to in this conversation with you is is exactly that point of, you know, there's a transition that's happening in the industry, and I don't think the the infrastructure team is bad. I don't think the application team is bad, right? And there used to be a point in time because I remember back in my IT days where you would sit down in a room together with the architects and with the, the lead and developers and you would figure out how to make this work the best, right? And and we miss that now. And there are a lot of things you can do with infrastructure that the application teams have no idea about, right? And there's a lot of things that application teams can do that the infrastructure team has no idea about. And so if you're both kind of like ships in the night and you're both doing best practices and you never share those with each other, you end up with an inferior product in the marketplace. And that's where, to me, you know, helping as a business to come together with your infrastructure team and with your application architects and say, how do we work together in a way that drives the business at most optimal speed with the least amount of risk that we can tolerate? And at the same time, how do you involve your networking team and your storage team and make them more, you know, cloud native architects and make them more cloud native, you know, solutions engineers that are solving problems and applying their vast knowledge of improvements and, and, and performance and security at that infrastructure layer to software development practices with, you know, software defined networking, software defined storage, software defined, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, and how the application teams would know what interface, you know, how do you define this API between the infrastructure team and the app team so that the app team doesn't have to worry about what storage vendor or what networking vendor you've deployed and what its specific interfaces are, right? It just knows interface up and I get a network, right? I need this DNS, boom, put it into the config and then you get that DNS, right? And so the more automatic you can make that infrastructure responsive to the application requirements, and the more that infrastructure team understands the value that they bring to the application, I think those two worlds coming together is what this transformation is exciting for because we're seeing that now. We're not. It's not just Ken off being crazy saying, you know, why can't we all just get along, right? It's it's really 
these two teams are coming together again and figuring out what's the best way to be successful as an organization versus silos that existed for, for many years now in IT and in the business that don't interoperate and don't share best practices and don't work well together. They're now breaking down those silos together. And that's what's really great about this whole transformation that we're seeing happen. As far as this transformation goes, it definitely seems like, you know, this isn't just the things that are impeding, I'll say the, the transition don't seem to be technology so much as it is culture and processes. Right. Uh, yep. you, you we talk know, to always of, talk about like technology, process, and um, and the um, time, right? Those three things, right? Technology, process, and and people. Those three things. I mean, so you know, your people. You have to kind of start. My view is, you have to start with your people, and you have to kind of lay out this vision for where you want to get to. And some people may not be able to come along that journey with you, right? That's not what you're hoping for. You're hoping that everyone gets on board and says, "Let's go," right? But um, you have to be honest with your teams and with your individuals and make sure that they're ready for this transformation. Um, and then the process, like, I, like I've mentioned multiple times in, in presentations, we have processes in place for good reason, right? They, we didn't, I don't, I think application teams are younger now. And so they don't realize that, you know, there's been lots of big problems that have happened in the internet because <laughs> process didn't exist, right? <laughs> and so, um, the problem is that process was defined 10, 15 years ago, and nobody's ever gone back to look at that process and see, is it still valid today? Or, or probably better question is, how do I modify this process to be more supportive of what we're trying to do today? And so I, I, am, I hate to say this, but I, I have told enterprises to kind of go back and question every process and every procedure and, and, and try to understand not why they have it, but how does it apply to me today? Is this outdated and useless procedure? What was the intent behind this procedure? Is that intent still valid going forward? Okay, how do we make that intent relevant for today? And then put that into some type of a CICD pipeline so that you're continuously evolving and continuously looking at those processes in every iteration you do. And if that process needs to be updated or changed, it becomes part of your development cycle, not an afterthought or not a, oh, we forgot about this process and now it's 10 years again and we have the same problem we have today, right? And, I, and you, I, you laugh, but we've seen this happen so many times. You know, people forget the why they do something you know? and it becomes a hindrance to moving forward. And then no one can tell you why because the person who wrote it has been gone for 10 years and no one knows why he wrote it in the first place, but we have to follow it, you know, and so... I think that's ap applicable not only just to, I'll say, like, you know, development of apps and infrastructure, but I think it affects most organizations in other areas. You know, I, I definitely right. seen, you know, there, there's always uh, departments, and, and it seems like the older the company, you know, the harder it is to shift. But uh, when it comes to sort of control and policies and, you know, really what they're trying to do is, is avert risk and make sure that there's not a bunch of rogue stuff going on, you know? Right. Uh, and, and one example, we were talking about it before was, you know, you guys uh, are using the DevNet, uh, the DevNet Create site has a site on Medium, right? And you've made right. the decision to sort of kind of pull that off of the cisco.com domain, but use Medium instead, you know? What was the driver behind that decision? And how do you make you know, folks who may not agree that's the right thing to do, how do you get them comfortable with that type of decision? Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, the decision that moved to Medium in, in the case with like DevNet was, I think it started with, we want to have 
a, a focus on a developer audience. And so for those of you who don't know Cisco DevNet, um, we are a group within Cisco engineering team that is focused on developers and what developers are trying to do in the multiple different areas that Cisco functions in, right? And so Cisco is one of these large, as, as Nikki mentioned, very large companies. And we have IoT, we have collaboration, we have networking switches and routers and access points. And you could go on for 20 minutes on all the networking stuff we have, right? And we have security solutions. Um, we have, you know, different businesses and different verticals like in the government and in healthcare and in, you know, finance. And so we, we are a very large company, but across all of that is a focus on how do we enable developers to leverage Cisco solutions through our APIs and through our, our networking interfaces to do what I kind of mentioned earlier, how do we make it easier to do unique performance to kind of differentiate yourself from your competitor? How do we make it easier for you to take advantage of advances that Cisco's made in networking and, and security to improve your product availability and your product's performance so that you can outshine against your competition? And so DevNet um, started out just you know three years ago, if you can believe that. It's a very young group within the environment of Cisco. And we work with all the businesses across Cisco to sort of enable easy integrations. We have sandboxes and learning labs. You can learn about technology you can get hands-on and use the technology and understand how to use the APIs. And so DevNet is trying to focus on this specific audience that doesn't go to Cisco.com, right? And and so we could have kept using Cisco.com, but we would never reach the audience we're trying to reach. And so the business decision was made to move to where our audience is, which is on Medium. And so we moved our blogging and our, our content to Medium and started publishing and, and you know promoting what we're doing on Medium. And we've had tremendous response, um, much more followers on Medium than we ever had on Cisco.com. And it's not because Cisco.com is bad or not. I mean, don't, don't take that I'm saying that Cisco.com couldn't reach that audience. It's just that that audience doesn't go to Cisco.com, but they do go to Medium. And now we're able to kind of cross link things to into cisco.com and cisco.com can post that we're doing things on medium and we're kind of bringing those groups together now and the the, the philosophy is that if we bring the two groups together you're going to get growth in both cisco.com visits and devnet community because you're driving more and more users to look at what cisco's doing in the space so i had tim crawford on the podcast uh he's a a well-known cloud guy uh, and he was making a point just in, in general uh, about the fact that, you know, the, the companies are always eager to go and market to CIOs. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, there's a lot of companies out there that want to go market to developers. But that's really hard. like I don't see the right. words marketing and developers. They going don't go together. together. Yeah. <laughs> they well, don't. First of all, why is that? <laughs> I think I think the main reason is you know developers. I, I I think of developers in two ways. There's the the ones that I think you and I are thinking about the most, which are the guys that are heads down, or they're gals, writing code. To be fair, right? Oh, gals, right? Guys and girls that are heads down writing code, and they don't look up. They don't communicate with other people around them other than their team, right? 
and they're just focused on driving revenue in the business, right? Um, and then you have the other group of developer um, guys and gals I look at are more of the architects. They, they kind of look across the industry, they try to understand trends, they look at open source projects, what are other people doing? And they try to bring that into the heads down developers that are just writing code all, all day long and love to write code, right? And so as you look at these guys and gals, they're not interested in what the market is trying to tell them, right? They know what the market needs. They know what they're working on. They're looking at what's happening around them and they're trying to figure out how to take advantage of that. They don't have time or do they want to have someone come in and tell them what they should be thinking, you know? So, so I think to your first question that developers don't have the time of day for, for marketing because it, it just wastes their, their cycles and they don't have time to waste cycles. But if you could, you know, Google something and end up on a DevNet site and it has a snippet of code or a pro tip of some kind, right. then that becomes yep. valuable, right? Right. And, and I, I think that's a difference in what I was mentioning before. As I didn't say we were marketing to the developers, we're trying to reach the developers by going to where they are, right? And so to your point, if we can provide relevance and content and they pick up that content in their day-to-day -day searching for how do I configure X or Y or, or what's the right way to, you know, how I have this Cisco product, how would I, you know, how would I write code to, to make that Cisco product do something? They're gonna find us on Medium because that's that's where they're searching, right? And, and they're gonna be happy that they found us because we're gonna have sample code, we're gonna have examples of how to do it and what else you can do with that device that they can then take and use right away without having to reach out to Cisco or ask Cisco for help. They can just take what we provide and just go with it, right? I, I see it uh, very much an exercise in efficiency. You know, like it seems like developers are gonna go wherever they can get the fastest, most complete, most reliable answer for the question that they have that doesn't involve reaching out to a bunch of people and waiting. And, yeah, I was joking with a couple of my friends that a couple of weeks ago at at, um, at one of the conferences I was at, one of the, the DevNet, um, not not DevNet, sorry, a, um, at DockerCon, right? I was talking with a couple of my friends and like, you know, we, we were kind of commenting how we haven't written any fresh code in years, right? We write code all day long, but we pretty much almost always Google something, find something <laughs> that's close to what we are trying to do, and then we start with something that's already been done. We don't try to reinvent it ourselves, right? And so I, and I, I don't think that's the common for like, I'm not trying to put down application developers because I know they're, they're inventing new code all the time and they do a great job of inventing code. But to your point, if they're trying to figure out how to take their new invention and work with something that's like a Cisco product, they don't want to in, invent that. They want to go borrow some code that's been written or have ideas of snippets of code that have been successful in doing what they want to do. And that it, you're absolutely right. It's all about efficiency and and the least amount of time it takes to get product out the door. Which arguably is happening on the consumer end. I mean, I think about all my favorite apps that I use and you know, all the apps that I download are ones that are gonna save me time or make my life easier or you know, help me accomplish whatever I need to accomplish the fastest. Like I used to drive to the store to get stuff scanned and faxed. And then I right. found like this scanner pro app and I'm like, oh my gosh, what a life changer. I can do all this from my phone. I don't need to, you know, go through this process of like hooking up a fax machine or you know, wondering if and, and this might be for like another another discussion time, right? Because I think you're onto something really important here. And I watch my kids and I think your kids are probably your kid is too young for this, but but my kids, they're all about the games and how they can waste more time by downloading oh, mine's, stupid mine's things on like the phone. 
<laughs> <laughs> and so like the the difference i guess the point i want to get is that the difference between like us and and people who don't have jobs or kids right is there's a different view of what they can do with applications and what, how applications can make their lives better versus like you and I want to be more efficient. They want to just waste time and have fun, right? And, and I think that culture, going back to your security question, I bring it up because I think that culture is why we're in some of the security concerns we have today is that that group, uh, that, that generation is growing up not worried about privacy, not worried about security, just worried about what can I do to have fun? How can I make this more fun for me? And that group is coming into the workforce now. And I think that's, it's going to be very interesting to see how that mindset that has shifted from more about efficiency to more about how do I get pleasure in what I'm doing, right? That's going to be a major shift, I think, over the next decade that we should be watching closely. Well, I'll tell you what, if, you know, if everything is as good as avocado toast, then millennials need to bring it because <laughs> I've been on an avocado toast kick. I've been posting <laughs> pictures of all my avocado toast inventions and I'm like, man, these millennials had it right. It's like, where has this been my whole life? Yeah, they, have a lot, they have a lot of great ideas and a lot of, a lot of good things for sure. It's a different perspective, most definitely. I mean, you know, growing up, I, I don't think I was really exposed to technology until I was like, you know, in my teens for sure. You know, we didn't, right. we didn't have all these cool, you know, iPads and games to play with. <laughs> no, I, always, I always joke with my wife when she was in medical school, I was in engineering school and um, we would use IRC to chat with each other. And I was explaining to my kids what IRC is. I was like, it's original instant messaging, except you type something and you had no idea if it got there. <laughs> and you just waited and waited and waited. And about 10 minutes later, you get something back. And then you would type another message and wait and wait and wait. So, you know, five or six text messages would take you an hour because you there's just you had no idea if it got there. You had to wait forever for a response. <laughs> you know, one thing that a surprise hasn't gone out of uh, that hasn't come back in fashion is like walkie talkies. You know, when I worked I, yeah. I, in a previous life, I worked in construction. We all had next telephones, you know, yeah. and you call your builder and say, you know, hey, you know, you got a broken ceiling fan, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, beep, beep, 10 for, you know, <laughs> that was pretty handy. I guess we have it like was. text messaging now, which is probably a lot less disruptive to the people that are around yeah, you. My, my kids like using like Snapchat, right? They take a, take a stupid picture and send it to someone. That's the way they communicate now. <laughs> a, ephemeral communication, which is, which is why <laughs> It's just absolutely wild. <laughs> I, I just devised this great plan, uh, speaking of, of technology, with my kid. I'm trying to get him to learn how to spell stuff uh, and, you know, get better at writing and spelling. And so I was like, man, how can I do this, like, over the summer? And so I had this great plan uh, to set him up with, uh, with a Minecraft account. And then I'll set up a Minecraft account and join his game and send him messages. And uh, he thought it was like the coolest thing ever. He's like, hey, you awesome. wrote me. I'm going to write you back. But I learned how to type from Telnet chat. So I figure like <laughs> I could probably use this technology uh, to my favor to help my kid out a little bit. Oh, my how, how, how uh, times have changed. So uh, switching gears. You obviously talk to a lot of companies. It's one thing that you absolutely love doing. And, and I'm sure you talk to people who are what one of my customers in a, a talk we gave called, you know, old school and new school folks, and you kind of see where these sort of worlds are colliding, but especially with regards to like, I'll say Cisco's traditional customer base, you know, how are people and companies evolving towards this cloud native model? I mean, they're not gonna just get rid of their old stuff overnight, but like the evolution is inevitable at this point, I think. And it seems like a lot of companies are struggling with this. 
Yeah, there's a lot of um, confusion and a lot of frustration in, in the companies I talk to because um, I, I've heard some um, CIOs and, and kind of VPs of infrastructure say, we just had figured out cloud and now this whole cloud native thing is coming, right? <laughs> and so um, it, it's, it's interesting from that regard, but to answer your question more directly, right? The, um, what I'm seeing being successful is, is starting with small projects. And, and it, it's no different than with any time in the past and how you'd kind of take on new technology, right? But you, the difference that I'm, I'm pushing it, and when I talk with customers is when you do this, this new project, think about what are the people as, you know, impacts and what are the process impacts and what are the technology impacts? Because when you, when you think of new technology, you think of like containers and you think of Kubernetes, and they are new technologies, but you also have existing new technologies that you probably just implemented in your enterprise, right? And and maybe something like MuleSoft isn't new to everyone, but it might be new to your enterprise. And so how do you leverage a message bus that is taking care of a lot of your enterprise back office stuff with Kubernetes? How do you uh, integrate those two message and, and distributed you know, orchestration solutions, you know, simultaneously, do they replace each other? Do they overlap? Do you, do you integrate them? Um, so, so I, I try to help enterprise customers understand that it's a journey and you have to start with helping your people see how they fit into the direction you're going, helping figure out which processes are going to be impacted by this, this new model of development that is, is going to take over as you and I, you know, both know it's taken over already. So it's going to continue to grow. Um, but, but probably most importantly, how do you look at the impact that it has on your existing technologies and how do you integrate or how do you maybe, maybe you have a project that's like a six month or eight month, I'm going to move off of, you know, this SAP Oracle 11 database, right? How do you take a new project that you know is going to take you multiple years and how do you table that project and rescope it to be more of a cloud native model? And what would be the impacts of doing that? What, are, what would be the benefits? What would be the drawbacks? What processes would be completely like useless when you did that? And what processes would you need to create when you do that? Because obviously a database that has personal information and it's not something you just, you know, haphazardly throw away, right? And so <laughs> there's a lot, when you start thinking about real projects and real aspects of what you're trying to do, it becomes a lot more real to you than just saying, I'm going to build, you know, a, um, a pet store app on my laptop and see how this technology can help me, right? Because no one builds a pet store app on their laptop. You know? So pick something real, pick something that really is going to make a difference and help you understand the impact that it can or cannot have on what you're trying to do. And, and, you know, what I like to tell my kids is, you know, take it, take a tough problem and try to solve it. And if you, you know, when you do that, you may not solve the problem the way you thought you were going to solve it, but you're going to learn so much about what you're trying to do by taking on a tough problem. It, it seems like that's a, a trait, I'll say, of, of people that I've seen sort of make these successful career transitions is that they're the type of people that love to learn and take it upon themselves to learn and to explore and to try things. And, you know, people aren't afraid to break things. And if there was one thing that I would want my kid, you know, to learn for sure, it's not like, hey, it's not always what you know, it's, you know, your passion for knowing probably right. more than anything else. Yeah, so definitely. I, uh, I, we just blew through 45 minutes, which is crazy. <laughs> uh, that was fast. Uh, 
you know, serverless is coming like I, into I the picture. Back, I yes, I would, I would love you to come back. <laughs> we can talk about the, the serverless things. You, you said uh, that people are just now wrapping their heads around cloud. And, you know, now that they, they've gone from like traditional infrastructure to like virtualization and now they're doing cloud, which still has servers, but now you're talking about serverless and I think people's heads are exploding. So I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to read more about that and have you back on to talk about that. Uh, Definitely. Where are you going to be in the next few months? Where can we find you? So I'm going to be at the um, OpenStack Summit in LA um, coming up in a couple couple months. And then I will be at Wait, um, OpenStack uh, Native, Summit? Open Source Summit, sorry. Open Source Summit, open yes. Open Source Summit, yeah, in the LA. Ne the next one, the next OpenStack Summit's in Australia, in Sydney. So. Australia, yep. Yeah. Uh, I've been looking at that. But I'll definitely be at the Open Source Summit, and I'll be at the uh, Cloud Native Con, KubeCon in, in um in Austin later this year. Yay! You'll have to call me. We'll have to hang out. Uh, Definitely. You can check out DevNetCreate. The blog is at medium.com slash at DevNetCreate. You can find Ken on Twitter at KenOwens12 with one N, yep. correct? Uh, right. Where else can we find you? You've, I mean, the DevNet site just has a ton of stuff on it. <laughs> which is super awesome. And you, you, I'm on LinkedIn at, at Ken Owens 12 as well. So LinkedIn, who uses that? No, I'm just kidding. I use it too. Uh, <laughs> it seems like the, the DevNet folks just in general, one thing I found consistent amongst the DevNet crew is that they're so helpful. Like they're always willing to help. Uh, and they usually respond to stuff super fast, which is super handy. Uh, but yeah, look for Ken online, check out DevNet creates, uh, subscribe. If you haven't subscribed, we'd love to hear your comments, feedbacks. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Hopefully, I'll be back with uh, with Ballard next week. So, Ken, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I hope. Thanks for having me. We'll tune in later, and we'll definitely get you back on the show, Ken. Cool. Take care. Bye. Bye bye.